us might still be shaking. So if you if you did not feel Sam's wrath, uh, I guess consider yourself lucky. Um, we are into April. I have my spring shirt on, and hopefully spring is actually on the way. And um, for next week on Grand Rounds, we will have uh, Joseph Vitorito, Vitorito from Maine Medical Center talking about purchasing parenthood. Uh, subtitle is Father Figures, so sort of a, a provocative title. I can't uh, say that I know exactly what the content will be, but it sounds, uh, it sounds intriguing. Today we continue our senior graduating resident series, our um, highlight of our spring for Grand Rounds. And today, Sherry Shinoda is going to join us and, and teach us. Sherry is, was born in Cairo, but grew up in Southern California, joined us after receiving her Bachelor of Science at the University of California, Irvine, and Doctor of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, in Morehouse School of Medicine. She has been a resident here, of course, since 2011, graduating 2014, and then heading off uh, for fellowship at the University of Florida in societal and community pediatrics. So two-year fellowship, a very exciting fellowship, uh, back down where it's warm. And um, and and Cherry, I'm not I'm not going to put you on the spot on the HPV vaccine, but Cherry picked a, a topic which is near and dear to my heart: HPV vaccination and the fall of civilization. Thanks, Cherry. <laughs> Is that a little bit better? Yes. Okay. Thank you for the introduction, and thank you all for coming. I apologize in advance for any coughing fits, but my husband has offered to come down and finish running through the slides because he has them memorized. <laughs> so we have a backup plan. Um, and so my topic is HPV vaccination and the fall of civilization. I want to talk about some of the social um, aspects of HPV vaccination, but our, so our objectives for today are first to present some background information on the virus, the history of vaccine development, um, and the disease burden uh, for HPV in the United States and abroad, talk a little bit about the evidence for vaccination, and then discuss the cost, the cost effectiveness, and the ethics of vaccinating boys and girls, and then talk about why people refuse vaccines and the, the social implications of refusal. I have nothing to disclose, and I won't be talking about any off-label or investigational uses. So I want to start with this young woman, Sophie Jones. She is a 19-year-old who just died three weeks ago in the United Kingdom of stage four cervical cancer. There's currently an online petition being circulated by her mom called Sophie's Choice. And the purpose of the petition is to ask Parliament to debate whether they could reduce the screening age for pap smears in the UK from 25 to 16. Um, and I think that, uh, so right now they have about 300,000 signatures and they need about 100,000 for a debate in Parliament, so I think this will happen very shortly. But I would like to propose to you that this is perhaps not the best way of preventing cervical cancer, that reducing the age of screening um, as opposed to increasing our primary prevention or vaccination may not be the best, um, the best option. So we'll come back to Sophie at the end of this section, but I want to draw your attention to the, this is from the CDC website, and cervical cancer is now on our list of vaccine-preventable diseases, which is amazing and has happened in the last 10 years. So I'm going to break this talk down into about three sections. Um, the first will focus on the virus, and then I'll talk about the vaccines that are available. And then we'll get to the, the fall of civilization and the social stuff. 
So this is the human papillomavirus. It's a non-enveloped DNA virus, means it has no outer lipid membrane. And following microabrasion, um, it replicates in the basal cells upon exposure of the basement membrane. Some basic things we know about HPV are that strains 16 and 18 together cause about 70% of cervical cancer. 6 and 11 together cause about 90% of genital warts. And infection can look anything from completely asymptomatic to warts to cancer. There's about a six-week to six-month incubation period for warts, and this is passed through genital contact. So this is the natural history of infection. What we're looking at here is in years, um, this is years of a woman's life. So you see a peak in prevalence of HPV infection between the ages of 15 and 25. And then you see a peak in precancerous lesions about 10 to 15 years after that. And you see a peak in cancer prevalence uh, between the ages of 35 and 50. This is where we propose back here to vaccinate girls before this initial peak. And then you see pap smears throughout a woman's life. And there's also uh, the new HPV testing. And then up here you have um, what we're looking at is the normal cervix, HPV-infected cervix, and then the progression through time to cancer, which again takes about 10 to 15 years. So there are about 100 known genotypes. They were just named in order of discovery. We know about 40 of them infect the genital tract, and about 15 of them are, are more aggressive and can cause cancer. And you can see 16 is the most aggressive of all. Um, 16 and 18 together cause about 70%. But these strains are also found to, to cause cancer in humans. I want to talk about HPV as a sex-neutral burden. So about 30% of the cancer we see in the United States is actually in men that's HPV-related. So you can see cervical cancer, 12, about 12,000 a year, with about 4,000 deaths, and genital warts down here. Um, but you can also see, and this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem, is that the, the number of oral pharyngeal cancers in the United States is actually becoming more and more HPV-associated. And so we know about 96% of cervical cancer in the US is probably caused by HPV. Uh, in some estimates, it's more than that, closer to 100. And if you look at the number of oral pharyngeal cancers we have, it's right on the heels of, of the number of cervical cancers in the US. But cervical cancer is a huge problem worldwide. So while we only have about 12,000 cases a year, this is the most common sexually transmitted infection worldwide, with about 50 to 80% of the world's population affected at any time. And cervical cancer is the second most common cancer in women. So you can see the red portions of the map. Sub-Saharan Africa, South America, and, and Asia, parts of Asia, are most affected. And we see about 274,000 deaths from cervical cancer abroad. So while a boy may not have a cervix, does have a head and neck. Um, so, so we think that oral pharyngeal cancers uh, in the 1980s, about 10% of them were associated with HPV. And that number increased to about 40% in 2000. And um, astonishingly, about 72% of HPV uh, oral pharyngeal cancers are associated with HPV currently. So we've seen about a threefold increase. And if this trend continues, we'll actually have more HPV-type oral pharyngeal cancers than we'll have cervical cancer in the US in just about five or six years. It's amazing. So this is George Papanicolaou, who said, the first observation of cancer cells 
in the smear of the uterine cervix gave me one of the greatest thrills I have ever experienced during my scientific career. While most of us are not this excited about cancer, um, we are excited about figuring out how to prevent it. So I want to go back for a moment to Sophie Jones, the, woman we, the young woman we talked about at the beginning. So this, what we're looking at are, are um, this is a graph of odds ratios. So at the bottom you have screening age. What they did in this study is they looked at women who were about 20 to 24 years old. And as you recall, the cervical cancer screening age in the UK is 25. So they looked at women at this age and tested them with a pap smear. They did not see a statistically significant number in cervical cancers caught at the age of 30. So you can see the odds ratio is one. The magic number seems to be about 25, and that's where they continue to screen. So I propose that perhaps the best way of catching more cervical cancers earlier is just to prevent them, uh, rather than to, to just screen earlier, which will cause a whole lot more abnormal pap smears. So let's talk a little bit about the vaccine. In 1914, Dr. Francis Caton Roos first uh, postulated that a virus can cause cancer. And then in 1935, he first showed that a papillomavirus specifically could cause cancer. And he showed that in, um, in skin cancer in, in an animal model. And then, it was, and then he ended up winning the Nobel Prize in 1966. And then it wasn't until 1985 that Dr. Harold Zerhausen first mentioned that APD can cause cancer cervical cancer specifically, and he won the Nobel Prize two years after the vaccine was released. So this is the HPV 16 viral genome. We have about 8,000 base pairs. We have six early replicating proteins and two late replicating proteins down here. This is it stretched out. So E6 and E7 are where the oncoproteins are on this genome, and L1 is what we're currently using to make vaccinations. So what we've done is we've isolated the L1 gene on, on the HPV DNA and using recombinant technology, um, we're producing these uh, viral capsid proteins, so virus-like proteins, and that's what's actually injected. So just to clarify, there's no live um, virus in this protein, in this um, vaccine, and there's no viral DNA. So we're, we're injecting virus-like particles. And what we hope to do is we hope to get a, a high enough antibody level sustained um, throughout time in a woman's body or a man's body to prevent, um, to prevent infection with, with this virus. These are the two vaccines that are currently available. We have on the left the quadrivalent vaccine, which protects against uh, HPV type 6, 11, 16, and 18. And then on the right, we have the cervix, which protects against 16 and 18. Um, so the series is a, a three shots currently in the United States. Uh, we give one at age of 11 to 12, one about one to two months later, and one six months after that. And it's worth mentioning that there is a nine-valent vaccine that's currently being produced um, and is in phase three trials. So as you can see, 16 and 18 together prevent about 70%. But when you add all of these, we're hoping to prevent close to 90% of cervical cancer worldwide. And people who should not be vaccinated are anyone who has an allergy to a specific component. Um, women who are pregnant were not tested initially in the, in, the, in the initial trials. And then anyone who has a moderate or severe illness at the time. Our vaccine rate currently in the United States for girls is about 
33% are completing the series. I just want to draw your attention to this number down here. So this is according to the, the National Immunization Survey, ETNs, in 2012. If we had no missed opportunities at all for vaccination, so if we caught girls when they were coming in for depo or a toe or whatever it is they come into clinic for, our vaccine rate would be up to 92% by 2014. And this is about where it is in boys right now. So about 20% of boys are starting this series and about 6% are completing it. And they are coming in for other vaccinations. So as you can see, the coverage for meningococcus is, in, is about 70% and for DTaP is about 78. So the social implications. Some of the things we hear is the vaccine going to kill my teenager? Why are we vaccinating kids so early? They're so young, 11 to 12 year olds. Boys get cervical cancer. Is HPV going to change sexual behavior? Is it actually effective? And is this even really a parent's choice? Is it a teenager's choice? So according to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, these are the top five reasons why parents, and about 23% of respondents said that they would not vaccinate their daughter um, in the next 12 months. So about 23% uh, responded to uh, of the whole. And these are the top five reasons that they gave for why they would not vaccinate their daughters. And the percentages are not as important, but some people said it wasn't needed. Some people weren't sure if it was recommended. There were a lot of safety concerns still lingering. Uh, there was a lack of knowledge about the vaccine in general and about HPV. And some people just said that their daughter wasn't sexually active. <laughs> and I just wanted to point out that while there are still ongoing safety concerns, as there should be with, with any new product, that the majority of these, I think, can be um, pretty adequately addressed in a conversation in clinic with just a few minutes of really education, I think. So this is also from the CDC, the same report. This looks at adverse events over time. So as you can see, the vaccine was released in 2006. You had a spike in adverse events reported, and then they sort of trailed off over time. This is through March 2013, so this bar might have been a little bit higher. But I think there are a couple of reasons why this, this uh, graph looks this way. Because the vaccine hasn't changed over time, right? It's the same as it was in 2006. I think we're starting to figure out what an adverse event really looks like. So we know that a sore arm is, is common. It's an acidic vaccine, it's painful. Um, we know that syncope is common with all vaccines in teenagers. <laughs> so I, I think that we're starting to figure out what an adverse event really looks like and, and you've sort of seen a trail off of, of adverse events reported. And this is according to the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, which is online and which I think I believe everybody has access to. These are the two largest studies I saw. There are a couple of studies by Mark, but nobody really really wants to hear that data. Um, so the, the CDC has a vaccine safety data link, and they've looked at over 600,000 doses as of, the, of 2013. They found no new safety concerns. Um, this, this study was done in Canada um, for about the same number of doses and also found no new safety concerns. They had two reported case of cases of anaphylaxis, which when they investigated them further were not did not meet the criteria. And they had one death, which they realized was due to a pre-existing cardiac condition. 
So we've given about 57 million doses to date of Gardasil in the United States. And Gardasil accounts for about 98% of the vaccines we give. Cervix is much more common overseas. So the current recommendation by the um, by ACIP is to just hold the kid in the office for 15 minutes in case they feel woozy and um, are trying to pass out. So I wanted to bring this back. Uh, when we, we talk about why we vaccinate so early, I think there are a couple of really important things we can tell parents. So one is that we get an increased immunogenicity in, in kids who are in the 11 to 14 year year range versus you know 18 to 21 year olds but also because we always want to vaccinate prior to an exposure right we want to make sure that we give the flu vaccine before somebody gets the flu we want to make sure that we're vaccinating kids way back here before they're ever exposed to hpv and some people are suggesting that well if we're vaccinating so early are we going to need a booster vaccine and the studies that i've read show that we so far we don't um, we're we're getting really decent antibody levels out to like seven or eight years. And um, it looks like if we project it out far enough, it, they'll be there about 20 years out. So it doesn't seem to be, um, it doesn't look like we're gonna need a booster vaccine. I wanna talk a little bit about cost. Since if we don't care about kids, this is to sort of where the money's at. Um, this is the Vaccines for Children program, which is run by the CDC. So it's federally funded and it's, um, it provides pre-vaccination for about 40 million um, children in the United States currently. So about 40% of teens are covered by um, the Vaccines for Children program. And I want to just point out that one dose of Gardasil, this is the price that uh, the Vaccines for Children program or the CDC negotiates for itself. And this is the price that the, the private sector negotiates. So one dose of Gardasil is over $100 um, whereas you could get one dose of Penticel, which is diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, Haemophilus influenza B, and polio for the bargain cost of $56. Um, so you can see how this becomes becomes a conversation about money. Where are we spending our healthcare dollars? And is this the best, the best way to spend them? And the cost is really, I, I think, a cost to society because all preventative services at this point are covered under most private insurers and, and the federal government. And I just want to point out that both Merck and GlaxoSmithKline have vaccine assistance programs that people can't pay. So let's do some math. So according to the US Census data, there are about 20 million kids between the ages of 10 and 14 in the United States if we want to vaccinate 80% of them for appropriate herd or community immunity, we have about 16 million kids left. If 40% of them are covered under the Vaccines for Children program and they negotiate that price, costs about $702 million for those kids, assuming everyone is insured, which is not true. And they get the, the $140 price the total cost of vaccinating 80% of the US population, ages 10 to 14, is about $2 billion, which gives me a little bit of sticker shock. <laughs> but if you look at the cost of HPV-associated disease in 2010, um, you can see that the number is in billions of dollars. So I'll bring these numbers back in just a minute, but just to, to, get, to give you a quick glance of what it's costing us to treat HPV-associated disease. And this is just treatment. 
this is not loss of work, angst, pain, suffering. It, it's just, just in, in, in dollars and cents. And this is at the cost at Dartmouth, just um, for curiosity's sake. I looked up how much it costs to get uh, a colposcopy here. It's about $950. It gets increasingly more expensive if you get a biopsy or if you have a leak procedure. Um, and then if you're getting an, a total abdominal hysterectomy, it's about 57000 And just to review one more time, the percentage we think of cervical cancers in the U.S. caused by HPV is about 96%. About 62, 63% um, of oropharyngeal cancers are caused by HPV. And a good number of vulvar, vaginal, and penile cancers are as well. So to go back to the math, Cervical cancer screening costs about $6.6 billion. If we take out the abnormal pap smears that the CDC uh, approximates we'll be able to prevent with appropriate vaccination, the cost goes down to about $5.6 billion, which is a pretty decent bargain. So the cost of treating cervical cancer in the U.S. is about $0.4 billion currently if we prevent about 70% of them with vaccination, the cost goes down to about 0.12. Anal cancers, if we prevent about 90% of them. Vulvovaginal cancers, if we prevent about 40% of them. Now cancers about 40% as well. And about 60% currently of oropharyngeal cancers, but this number seems to be rising. And we can prevent about 325,000 cases of, of genital warts yearly. So that brings that number down to about 20 million. Um, a respiratory papillomatosis. Some of these kids end up trached and require multiple surgeries, if we can prevent 90% of them with um, vaccination against type 6 and 11. So our total goes from about $7.78 billion to about $5.96 billion, which if you're vaccinating for about $2 billion a year um, for one dose, the cost sort of, sort of comes to a wash. This is the closest thing to a, a really good cost-effectiveness projection that I found. This was done in the British Medical Journal in 2009. Assuming about a 75% rate of vaccination, if you just vaccinate women to prevent a case of cervical cancer, it would cost less than $50,000 per quality-adjusted life year. If you vaccinated men and women, it would exceed $100,000 per quality-adjusted life year to prevent a case of cervical cancer. So this is the closest thing I found to a really good approximation of how much it costs. But this really is a bigger problem worldwide. So while cervical cancer is not you know, a, huge, a huge issue here in the US, um, it, it, it does cause quite a bit of morbidity and mortality elsewhere. So this is the number that we would need to get vaccination down below for the three-shot series per girl to make it worthwhile. So in Sub-Saharan Africa, where the burden of disease is largest, if we could vaccinate each girl with all three shots for less than $25 to $50, um, it would actually be cost-effective. $140 for South America, 
about 25 for, for the for upper um, northern Africa and the Middle East, and about $100 per girl in Asia, which, as you as you recall, it's costing about $400 a girl in the United States. So I want to talk a little bit about the Gavi Alliance. This is the Global Alliance on Vaccinations and Immunizations. It's a global health partnership um, created by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation initially. And they are what they're trying to do is increase access to vaccinations in resource-poor areas. And they've gotten the dose price down to about $4.50, which is really astounding, and makes vaccination a possibility for, for many of these countries. So these are the countries currently participating. Um, the numbers, in, the ones in green are um, countries approved as of 2014, and you can see a lot of the countries in, in Sub-Saharan Africa are starting to sign up for this. Another thing that I think would really uh, bolster our immunization rates in the U.S. and abroad are to decrease this from a three-shot series to a two-dose two series. And the European Medicine Association actually just approved a two-dose schedule in February of 2014 for Gardasil. And they're awaiting uh, European Commission approval. So I think this will become reality um, hopefully in the next couple of years for them. So I want to just draw your attention to a couple of things on this, this slide. So this is HPV 16 up here, and this is HPV 18. This study looked at um, two shots versus three shot series. And this is natural immunity. So in case anyone was thinking of having like the equivalent of a chicken pox party, um, <laughs> it doesn't really, it doesn't get our antibody levels up where we'd like them. Um, but as you can see, the three three dose series is in the in the blue up here, and the two dose, there are a couple of them. One is they gave the first dose and then they gave the second dose a month later. They gave the first dose and then they gave the second dose six months later. Um, and as you can see with a one dose, which is the purple one, we get a little bit less uh, of an antibody, sustained antibody, um, antibodies over time, but but it's it's still way higher than natural immunization or natural natural antibodies from infection. And this was a projection of efficacy done in the British Medical Journal as well. So they looked at if. In the blue, we have boys. In the pink, we have girls. Um, these are carcinoma cases. And these are remaining number of cancer cases at steady state. So if we vaccinate 70% of the population, <coughs> these are the remaining, this is the remaining cancer burden, about 6,000, if we just vaccinate girls. If we added vaccination of boys, we would get about a 65% reduction in the remaining cancer burden in men. And then over here, we have about a little bit over 5,000 cases left with appropriate vaccination if we just vaccinate girls. If we vaccinate boys as well, we get a 40% reduction in the, in the remaining cancer burden. So it's a really um, nice way of looking at mutual herd immunity. <laughs> so what we know is that Everything we've looked at states that HPV vaccination does not change sexual behavior. I'm going to look at a few different studies with you. But so this one was done um, in January of 2014 from the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. They looked at sexual behaviors, including high-risk behaviors, in women who had been vaccinated and women who haven't been vaccinated, and they were fairly similar. 
Um, this study in the journal Vaccine um, that was done in 2012 looked at girls who had been offered the vaccine who were no more likely to be sexually active than girls who hadn't, and the vaccinated group were no more likely to, to have changed their high-risk behaviors, so they didn't change the, their condom use number or the number of partners. <clears throat> and then most recently, this was in March of March 2014, pediatrics. So this looked at risk perception. So among sexually um, inexperienced participants, their risk perception after vaccination was not associated with an increased risk of sexual initiation. So they didn't think, oh, I'm vaccinated, so I'm shielded, and I'm going to go become you know, more, more active in a risky way. And then among kids who were sexually experienced um, at baseline, their risk perceptions also didn't increase their number of sexual partners or condom use. So a couple of other things that I think we should consider are, one, sexual rights in teens. Is it really the parent's um, responsibility and or um, right to choose for a teenager whether or not they, they should be vaccinated? So for instance, in California, 12-year-old girls can consent to vaccination and 12-year-old boys can consent to vaccination. Um, is it really up to the parents? Um, because kids can, back at 12, year, 12 years of age, they can consent for um, getting oral contraceptives, so should they be able to consent for a vaccine that can prevent them from getting um, HPV? And then secondly, is it ethical to just vaccinate girls um, when we know that boys' rates of oral pharyngeal cancers are increasing, female cancers? Um, so is it, would you want to vaccinate your girl to help somebody else's boy not get penile cancer or oral pharyngeal cancer? And should the recommendation be any different for special populations? So for LGBTQT population or men who have sex with men, we know that men who have sex with men have a 17 times increased risk of getting anal cancers. And then no one wants to talk about abuse, but one in four girls are sexually abused before the age of 18, one in six boys. Do we want to vaccinate kids to protect them against anything that might come? So there is some good news in sort of a grim, grim presentation. But this is a study that came out of Australia. Uh, so this is, they had a fairly a quick uptake of the vaccine once they released it. So they were up to about 70% vaccination at this point. On the x-axis, you see years um, through time. And then up here, you see percentages of, of the population with genital warts. Um, the blue line is 21 to 30-year-olds. The yellow line is the vaccine population, which is the less than 21-year-olds. Um, so they released the vaccine in about 2006, and you saw a fairly steady um, and quick drop in um, the, their percentage of genital warts in women. So they had initially just vaccinated women. And then what they saw, which was exciting but sort of unexpected, was that their rates of genital warts in men dropped at the same time. So these are men who had not been vaccinated, um, but the less than 21-year-olds, you can see a really um, steady decline in, in genital warts in them as well. So herd immunity. This is my favorite study. So this was done in, uh, in the Journal of Infectious Disease last year in 2013. And it looked at the reduction in HPV prevalence um, in, in the United States, specifically, between the years of, um, 
So they looked at right before we had implemented the vaccine, which was 2003 to 2006. Um, and then they looked at the years just after, 2007 to 2010. And they saw that with just a 30% vaccination rate, that our rate among girls of the vaccine type HPV, so 6, 11, 16, and 18, fell from 11.5% to about 5%, which is more than a 50% reduction in just the years that we've been vaccinating girls. And there was no um, significant drop at the same time in non-vaccine strains of HPV, which is uh, what we would expect. Although there is some cross-protection among strains, there isn't much. But the really impressive thing, I think, is that the effectiveness of one dose is greater than 82%. So even if you can get kids into the clinic for just one dose of the HPV vaccine, um, we can protect them at least a little bit. So just, just for comparison's sake, the HPV vaccination rate in the UK is about 80% currently, and in Rwanda, it's about 80%. So we're, we're getting there. <laughs> positive. Um, and I just want to very briefly talk about the research we're doing over in clinic right now. So this is the Cornet um, is the continuity research network. These are continuity clinics across the country, and Dartmouth was selected for this, this quality improvement project. So we're part of the standing orders branch, and we're going to have standing orders for HPV vaccination. So if a kid comes in for anything, um, it, whether it be a, a flu vaccine or a subtoe, uh, there will be a flag that pops up in their chart that says, would you like to be vaccinated against HPV? And then the parents can you know, ask what, whatever they like about it, and if they say no thank you, it's fine, they can defer it. And if they say yes, then hopefully we can start to get our vaccine rates up a little bit. And we're also trying to implement a really strong provider recommendation. So there will be um, a dot phrase that you can just auto-populate into the after-visit summary. And if people are in the pre-contemplative phase, perhaps they'll read it at home and move into the contemplative phase. So this will be something that's, that's starting in the very near future. So just to recap very briefly, HPV causes about 26,000 cancer cases annually in the US. Um, our vaccine rates continue to lag behind uh, the rates of other adolescent immunizations. But I think that we, we have a really good opportunity to increase vaccine uptake by, one, decreasing the missed opportunities for immunization and, and giving a really good, strong provider recommendation. And then I wanted to end um, with Dostoevsky, from the Brothers Karamazov. He says, to make yourself responsible for all men. And I think that this is something we can really bring up for teenagers. It's developmentally appropriate for, for us to ask them to be, uh, or to consider to be uh, citizens and how their choices affect um, their fellow uh, humans. And so we can encourage them to make decisions, not just because it's, it's a healthy decision for them to make, and it'll help protect them against cancer, but also it can help prevent a future partner. Citations. <laughs> and then I just wanted to say thank you to Dr. Gifford and Dr. Shokin um, and to the Tylers for their help and Dr. Palumbo for making sure I didn't make any huge um, immunization gaps. And then um, up in the top right is my, my um, mathematics team, my mathematician dad and my economist brother who hopefully um, didn't, uh, prevented me from humiliating my fifth grade math teacher. And then Andrew as always. <laughs>
But I think the focus right now is on catch-up immunization. So while the recommendation is vaccinate 11 to 12-year-olds, we're vaccinating as young as 9 and as old as 26. So I think in this initial like 10-year period where we just catch everyone who's eligible, we can start to focus on that 11 to 12-year category later on. But um, I, I actually think that they're probably more engaged than other teenagers. Does that answer your question? So you know why the Paul they're in at age 2012. You know why they're in at age 2012? Yeah. Yeah. So the schools require the attendance booster. So we have what's called the so-called adolescent platform at, at before seventh grade to get their attendance booster. Hopefully get their HPV or the meningitis vaccine all at the same time. That's the notion. And as Sherry pointed out, the meningitis vaccine is pretty well taken. And the attendance is probably close to 100 percent So they're in the office. And they're getting vaccines, but we're woefully inadequate of getting them this particular vaccine. Sure. So, so is that, that a national uh, set of data, or is it? It is. It yeah, is. that's the National Immunization Survey data. So where the problem is internationally, in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places, there is no infrastructure for this. Mm -hmm. So you can get the vaccine cheaply. You still have to deliver it. And that's the other question for Gavi. Um, are they negotiating with uh, Merck and GSK for the vaccine, that's or are they going generic? Or would... That's my understanding. I don't know that there's a generic actually available yeah. right now. But they can get it down to 450 uh, vaccine. The, the problem I perceive with the 11 and 12 year olds is not the kids, but the parents. For <laughs> <laughs> um, all the reasons that you cited in your slide. and. So I think I think the, the public health message there is going to be educating the parents about population prevention and um, uh, that, that vaccinating prior to exposure because of course my little girl wouldn't dream of having sex ever. <laughs> ever. So there's a step before that. No, there's a concurrent step and. This isn't published data, but uh, a, a survey conducted that we, George isn't here, but at the Washington Conference, uh, the National Pediatric Society sponsored a uh, pediatrician who did a very quick but nice survey, um, I think in New England only, of uh, providers. And it was striking to me, I didn't have a slide with the numbers, but the five top reasons that you listed that parents don't vaccinate their daughters were essentially the five reasons why uh, pediatricians hadn't vaccinated their 12 or 13 year olds in their practice. Um, really, as an indicator at that age, oh, they're not going to be sexually active yet. Same issue. So there's even a step about the provider community of getting uh, to that point. Uh, so we think of every hospital encounter as an opportunity to vaccinate. So you talked about mild illness. So I'm thinking about the inpatient unit. Because uh, that philosophy should be there whenever we see a patient. So, is it contraindicated if they're in the inpatient unit? No, I don't think we ever tried. I think we do flu vaccines if they have a mild illness because oh, they're being discharged. Um, so, if they qualify for a flu vaccine, then HPV vaccine would be. I'm just thinking for. Yes. Yeah. It would be interesting to think about. Yeah, it would be. But once you get the clinics taken care of, and <laughs> <laughs> move it to the other side of the hospital. Yes. Because I think the education. Every opportunity we have to educate people would be great. Thank you. I can comment on the Bridget said that they called once for the emergency room looking for some vaccine, and it's all state provided. So they would have, the family would have to pay differently if it were given inpatient versus 
outpatient, if I understood it correctly, would have happened. So it's unfortunate that we probably can't. There's probably not a good method to make that happen in place right now. Um, but Jeff, the thing I wanted to. Jeff? That there shouldn't be a charge if it's given in patient. Okay. Yeah, right. um, that was not my original comment. So. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask about um, hepatitis C and if there was, because I feel like everybody or most people feel okay about hepatitis B. And it's very, I, I've started comparing it a lot to HPV with my family because it prevents cancer. It's sexually transmitted. We give it to newborn babies. And I just wonder, it used to be given to teenagers. Did you look at any, like, was their data similar? Did it take a while for Hep B to take off for people to really feel okay about it? Like, do we just need to make it to 10 years and then everybody will feel happy about HPV? That's really interesting. I actually didn't look at that, but I'm going to use that. Let me give it to Bacon. <laughs> well, I'm going to say, I'm going to ask Diana if she confirms the suspicion. We didn't get to the rates of, of hepatitis B vaccination until it became an important vaccine. Right. We had the same conversations about hepatitis B as we have with HPV because it is a risk behavior based vaccine that we were giving to teenagers. And I remember those days, and so does Diane, probably others in the room. This is, I was at the um, not Washington conference, and I was floored, floored by the pediatricians and the family practitioners about this vaccine and it made me realize that as a field we've really blown the public relations and the uh, science behind this vaccine. I, mean, I don't think I really realized the impact on head and neck cancer until one of my uh, colleagues from Oklahoma got it. Then I realized I got a head and neck uh, cancer. I, I just don't think we've done a good job. I remember when chickenpox came out, pediatricians were a little slow on that. Um, rotavirus initially were a little slow, but there aren't very many vaccines that we've taken up so poorly. And we're blaming it on the parents. I don't know that that's true. So listening to this whole thing, as it develops, my every time I come to a conference or hear a talk like this, I get really confused by the cost-benefit analysis. I mean, also I'm an economist who's a husband, uh, so I hear this all the time. And I was at a adolescent conference where they said, well, cost-benefit analysis, if we reach a certain level in girls, then we should stop vaccinating boys because it doesn't pay. And I'm, that's where I worry about the public message because if we all of a sudden push, 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 and then go, oh, but the boys don't need it anymore because yeah. it doesn't cost, it doesn't pay for it, then I worry and we push for three and then we go down to two or one. You know, I think we there's more data that needs to be right. put out there to say what, what is the right answer. Right. I, I think that that's probably the take home message is that we really need more data, but I, I think that it would be very difficult to think of this as a sex neutral burden if we're not going to vaccinate boys as well. And so while a lot of different portions of the world are not vaccinating boys, I don't know how we would get away with it in the US um, where we're about self-actualization and gender equality. It's, if you're looking at 30% of cancers caused by HPV, it would be really difficult, I think, to sell the message that we're just going to vaccinate girls and then boys are going to reap the benefits. <laughs> I think that would be a hard pill to swallow as a parent. So, so, thanks for asking my question, which I asked Jerry before the parents, I know we put her on the spot today. Um, the, the data would suggest that the analyses on those analyses are based on the outcome of cervical cancer. 
probably. All these other cancers haven't probably been included the way Sherry started to do a faculty in the low cost effectiveness analysis. And unfortunately, even with all of those savings, with the cost of the vaccine being where it is, it's a bit of a wash. Right? It's too many right. savings and too many costs. But with, the one, with one shot. That's only one. So for right. sure, we're not there yet. But the analysis would suggest that for cervical cancer outcome only, that if you could achieve, depending on the study, 65, 70, 80% coverage in girls, you don't, you just don't reap the, the economic benefit on the cervical cancer outcome by also vaccinating the boys, which the Australians showed a long time ago. And it's sort of a, a bugaboo, as you say. But if you can do the analyses incorporating these other costs, um, then, then, then you're probably, and that's why the data needs to come in, then you're probably more there. And, and Sherry did a great job on the back of the envelope, but that is a back of an envelope. And one of the other problems that we have is as we do that, the costs there are repetitive costs per year. So some of those costs are going to go down that were in her right-hand column as soon as we reach degrees of penetrance. And you're right, we need more data analysis. But at the same time, as OP cancer is increasing, it's hard to deny our population of boys this vaccination until we get there. And you also have a fixed cost for the vaccine, and we're just assigning a fixed cost to certain right. And I'm sure if we had a fixed cost up on the board for ALL, Dr. Chaffee would be like, you know, the cost of my family is four times that over the course of the year because they've got missed work, they've got childcare, they've got whatever. It all sort of adds up to it, but we can't put that in a cost-benefit analysis. So I think it's really hard to do those types of analysis. So I think if you come out with analysis like that and it's a wash, then you can actually say this is by far definitely a benefit because there's so many other costs that you're just not going to get looking at sort of the, the cancer side of things. But even, even so, the, the, the hang-up still is the lack of data on the other outcomes and the, the cost of the vaccine. Because even major proponents of the vaccine, the folks uh, from the CDC and ACFPI, I was at the last meetings last week, and some of the economists turned the numbers, and they still came to the same conclusion, which is if we can achieve higher rates with girls, we don't reap the benefits cost-wise or investment-wise with the boys yet. So the cost still needs to come down. What may seem real silly questions is is uh, the papillomavirus is the only cause of cervical cancer, and do girls get oral parental cancer? Um, so we think that the papillomavirus causes almost all cases of cervical cancer worldwide. It's something like 98, 99% as far as I know. And then yes, girls do get oral pharyngeal cancer, and they do get HPV type oral. In terms of um, the initial testing, it was gender unequal. It was only tested in girls for efficacy and safety, um, which frustrated me enormously uh, until they finally acknowledged that, yes, it is effective and safe in boys and go ahead and immunize. There, there, is, there is a public health argument to be made for improving the herd immunity by vaccinating the whole herd even aside from the whole issue of all of the effects on boys in terms of cancer prevention and wart prevention. The wart issue was pretty much evenly mixed to begin with. So it, it, we're still struggling with the gender inequality issues from the outset. But the other question that I would have for you, though, is 
Um, we're assuming that this vaccine costs that much. What? It wouldn't surprise me if pharma had made the same kind of cost-benefit analyses that you're presenting and said, okay, we can justify charging a wash. Um, is there any political likelihood that um, we can control vaccine costs uh, in a more rational fashion? I can speculate, but that, that, that might be a pay grade. I can, I can see how that would be a concern. Uh, yeah. It seems like a it seems like a random number, right? Why one hundred and forty one dollars and thirty seven cents? It's called whatever the market will bear. Right. Uh, this is a question I uh, work with the sexual assault victims, mm -hmm. and you touched on it briefly about the legality of who can ask for or refuse this. So this kind of borders on at fourteen in New Hampshire, girls can and boys can request care for sexual health. Does this fall into that category, or does it fall into preventative care, which then requires parents? Uh, I'm asking because these girls can come into the ED, we see them, and they can not only ask for it, but they could potentially refuse in the case of their parents want it. So I'm wondering if New Hampshire has seen that as sexual health or preventative health. That's a really great question. I think at this point it's still seen as preventative health, from my understanding, um, which we, which means we have to ask the parents to get consent, unfortunately. Or maybe unfortunately, depending on. I, I, I think you'd be on shaky ground to, to administer without parental consent. So, do you know what research is being done actually about what changes the minds of parents to get vaccines? You know, we have a, there was a stripper, Playboy stripper, who could convince the country that you know, they shouldn't get vaccines. What is the <laughs> That's a really great, that's actually a really great question. There's um, one, one study that was done um, also based on the National Health and Interview Survey data um, that looked at awareness. And they found that awareness actually doesn't equal initiation. So in, in parents with higher socioeconomic status, and higher education, they actually were less, they were more aware of the vaccine and less likely to initiate. So it's it's, it's really confusing about what causes people to consent or not. I find that too interesting, because you know, we take their kids to the cancer. Right. And we still have parents who, when we talk about they need to get boosters after the vaccination, so parents will say, well, I don't want them to get HPV. And they just finished two and a half years of chemotherapy. I still don't understand it, but it's that strong. Yeah. Yeah, There's an article this month. It's either in Journal of Adolescent Health or Green Journal, because I read both sets last night, the abstracts. Huh? Okay. About uh, using Facebook as an education modality rather than brochures, and their uptake of contraception was tremendously higher using a Facebook link rather than a brochure. And I just wonder if sometimes we haven't adopted to the social media uh, utilization uh, appropriately to try to do some of this mind changing at places that uh, the age group of parents that we have right now are very active. Dr. Brooks? Um, like many other people, I think the number one objection I've gotten in clinic is, but she's too young. It's way too early for that. Um, and of course, you know, you try to go into the do it before she's even thinking about it. But, you know, they don't in their hearts believe that their daughters are ever going to have sex, right? Um, <laughs> The increased immunogenicity 
uh, that we talk about, is there really good, robust data for that, or is that just something we kind of mumble about on our way to trying to convince them uh, on a anticipatory level? As far as I know, there's really good data on, on, on increased immunogenicity in like the 11 to 12 year range. I can send you a couple articles on that. Getting this approved, this vaccine, they didn't have the outcome, right? They couldn't show the outcome. So it was all of unimmunogenicity, unimmunogenicity data, and they really had lots of, a lot, a lot of the early research was done here with Diane Harper and Ben Medicine and Harry PHMC. So, um, is your read, as I have is your read about the behavior change literature that Julie pointed out and you pointed out that, that, that parents really are all over the place? Is it that really yeah. you're trying to do interventions to change parental attitudes? It seems that it's just, there's is, is a disconnect between awareness and, act, and action. Um, it's, there are two, two main things I found. One is that parents who were, quote, vaccine hesitant or who were on the fence, if there was a really strong provider recommendation that tended to affect them positively, if they were, like, super against it, um, our recommendation actually made them less likely to vaccinate. So for parents who are on the fence and are, are actually in the contemplative phase, a strong provider recommendation is actually helpful. So the last, you had good news in there as well. As there was some good news. The most depressing thing for me is that we actually have seen a turning, it seems, I don't know if you agree with this, So we've seen a turning. We were doing better with vaccination of girls and we somehow, it seems almost concurrent with the increase in vaccination of boys, we've sort of softened. Our rates of actually achieving vaccination with girls has maybe declined or flattened in the past three to five years. And boys sometimes, I don't know if those of you in clinic find that parents of boys are almost easier selves. And it goes back to unfortunately the duality of boys will be boys and my daughter will never be sexually active. So um, there's there's a lot of work to be done as, as Sherry nicely pointed out. So thank you very much.